we're going to go ahead and get started on class. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John. The book of 1 John that comes before 2 John and after 2 Peter. Um, that which is from the beginning. That which is from the beginning. The biblical author of John absolutely loves starting out his books like this. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see in just a moment when we read the beginning of this passage, we're going to see that it starts out like that which is from the beginning. Uh, and if we sit there and we think back to his first book, it's in the beginning uh, was the Word and the Word was with God and all that fun things. And a lot of times what we don't do is we don't sit down um, and, and at least I have it in my lifetime, sat down and opened up the book of 1 John or even 2 John or 3 John. There are these books that are tucked near the end of the New Testament. Uh, and I feel like a lot of times we don't cover them. And I'm super excited over, uh, as you can see on the poster, in September and October, besides one other day, where we'll be in the auditorium. I'm super excited for the opportunity of us to take uh, this book and go through uh, 1 John. Uh, when you read through this book, it has so many incredible things, and I'm excited for us to break it down. Um, the background of the book. Now, a lot of times, I know the background can be like, like exhausting and boring, but I think for us, uh, as we're starting this study, I think it's kind of important to understand what it is. Uh, first off, a lot of times in our brains, we're like, automatically, Apostle John. Um, not guaranteed we know what John it is. We know pretty much for a fact that it's the same John who wrote the gospel, which pretty much guarantees that it's the Apostle John. But all those things um, go down together. We don't know exactly if it's the Apostle John, but good chances are that it is. Um, a really neat thing about this book is that it was written to a house church in Ephesus. Now, if you think about it, uh, most churches at this time were house churches. Uh, but in this situation, um, John is writing this book to a church who is a, a smaller house church in Ephesus. Um, and it was written to a group of people who was dealing with this, this uh, group of people on the inside and even around on the outside who had, had suddenly started trying to stir everyone into this idea and believing that Jesus was not God. Oh yeah, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus came to earth, but Jesus is not a part of the Godhead. Jesus is not God. This is what people were saying. And so what John is trying to do with 1 John is he's sitting here and he's writing it almost as a form of damage control. Like, damage has been done. These people are coming in and they're telling all the church, like, hey, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't God. And John writes, like, oh, no, wait a minute. He is God. It's an assurance that Jesus is with them if they're going to follow Christ. Another interesting thing that we're going to find about this book, now we're not going to be able to see it as much in our English translations, but it wasn't necessarily a letter. Now it was written in a letter to send to them, but the writing style was more of a, uh, of a poetic sermon, which, um, which is fascinating because what, it's going, what we're going to see is that most of the ideas that we're going to read uh, that, that, is, that are written here are going to come straight out of Jesus' teaching. Which, oh, oh what is that? athlete, um, <laughs> which uh, is, is a really neat quality 
because what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of correlation between the Gospel of John and this book of 1 John. And because it's this poetic quality that we're going to see written, it's going to be super cool uh, and unusual, especially for the people who were reading it when it first came to them. The original readers of this would have been like, whoa, that's crazy. And because of the way it was written, they are going to understand, and, and we're not going to be able to see it as much, but we can grasp the idea that what they're reading is something different and something special. That's where we get uh, that's where the style of writing um, becomes something. We're going to notice he's going to use a lot of hyperbole, which are these exaggerated statements um, that are almost not meant to be taken literally, but we are going to notice that it's almost to emphasize points at a lot of different times. And it's deeply profound and it's deeply different than a lot of things that we're used to seeing in Scripture. Also with First John, there are two massive sections of the book. Uh, one is... Um, they, they both start with, this is the message. So the idea, this is the message, and then this is the message. John is going to start out, and what we're going to see is, um, is we're going to see that in just a moment, the idea of this is the message. Uh, but they're both going to cover very two, like two very different topics that are going to end up um, combining and intertwining. One is uh, the idea of light. And the other is the idea of love. And he's going to kind of compare and contrast these two ideas throughout the book. And, and what we're going to get to go to do, um, and the whole goal of the book, is to see this idea of walking in the light. And that's about to do, like when we go through this, that's going to be kind of a, an overstatement of what we're going to see. A, a statement that's going to cover all of it. Um, and, it and it's going to be a beautiful letter uh, for these reasons. Let's go ahead and get into scripture, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now I want us to stop there in verse 1 for just a minute. The book starts out by bringing up one of the most important points that you can bring up in scripture. It starts out with this idea, hey, this book is about Jesus. This book is about Jesus Christ. And to, uh, as a book written to a bunch of people who are sitting here being faced with a bunch of people who are sitting here like, no, Jesus isn't God. Jesus isn't the Christ. Jesus isn't the Messiah. This book start out saying, hey, by the way, that which was from the beginning, by the way, it's about Jesus. It's about this God that, that people are questioning. And what he's going to do is he's quickly going to point out in this first verse, look, he says, which I looked upon, we have touched with our hands, um, we have seen with our eyes. He's going to be like, hey, I knew this guy. Jesus isn't some random dude who, who you've heard about. I've seen him. I've touched him. I've, I've felt him. I've touched the scars. This really is Jesus. This really is God. And kind of going back to the background a little bit, but, but not really, it comes into this point. The book was written about 100 AD. Now the question is, why does that matter in this context? If you remember uh, several Sundays ago now, I think it was like maybe the first Sunday of the month, um, John had a lesson, and he talked about uh, the city of Ephesus. 
And as you remember we were saying just a minute ago, this is a book that was written to the people in Ephesus. And the city of Ephesus is this place uh, that was obsessed with worshiping the Roman gods and goddesses. So here they are. Um, they have... Uh, they're in this city, and, and they love worshiping their gods and goddesses. Artemis was like the number one um, person at this time. Her temple was huge. It was a wonder of the world. It was all these amazing things. And it was essentially a city that existed to worship the gods at that time. And so the, the Christians who are in this city, uh, in Ephesus at this moment, when this letter is being written to them, are going to be constantly barraged with, this is God, and this is God, and these are our gods, and, and this is who we worship, and this is the big deal, and this is the powerful thing. And this book starts out by saying, look, the only thing you've ever seen of those gods is the statues that are made by hands. You know they're made by hands. You think they exist somewhere off in, in the sky, in a city that sits on a cloud, and that's all that you've ever known of them. Well, by the way, this God that I'm teaching you about, I saw him. I saw him 70 years ago, less than 70 years ago. I, I touched his scars. I looked upon him. I spent time with him. You've never done that with yours. Listen to what I have to say about my God. And what we're about to see is that his reason for being there, the reason he's in Ephesus, the reason he's writing to Ephesus, is because he knows how true and real his God is. Verse 2 says, And the life was made manifest, this is talking about Jesus, and the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So he sits here and he says, okay, because of all the amazing things I've seen, because of all the amazing things I, I have heard, I have one goal in life, it's to tell everyone I know about Jesus, it's to share this message that I've heard, and I'm coming to you right now because you haven't heard it. My goal is to proclaim these things to everyone so that you might have fellowship with us, so that you can be a part of us. And what's going to happen here is, is as we see this like broad idea in, in these few verses in this paragraph, we're going to see a word that he uses that I think is so vital to as we study this passage. He uses the phrase fellowship. He's writing, and if you look into, uh, he uses it several times, uh, like in verse 3, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. Um, in verse 2, uh, well, hold up. Yeah, but like in verse 3 where it says our fellowship was with the Father. I should have written down exactly where they were. Um, but he sits here and he's writing and he says, we want you to have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with God. I want you, we want you to have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with God. And when I sit here and I read that, I'm like, Whoa! I would love to be a part of that fellowship. Can you imagine that? 
getting to be a part of a fellowship, if you're sitting there as a Christian in this time period, you're surrounded by unbelievers, and you have an apostle most likely writing to you and saying, hey, we want you to be a part of our fellowship because our fellowship was at this God. Remember I just told you about how our God is real. And you can sit there and imagine as a Christian in this time, and, and as a Christian now, I'm sitting here and I'm like, I want to be a part of that. How incredible would that be? I would get to be a part of, of, of the apostles. But more importantly than that, I would get to be a part of Jesus Christ. I would get to be a part of God. And it sounds absolutely perfect, and it sounds incredible. And the Greek word here, and I'm not going to go into the, like, the name of the Greek word, but the Greek word here, I think, has an impact on the way we read this. Because the Greek word means participation. So when we read the word fellowship, what, what the original text was trying to say was that it was, it was participation. And so when we read this passage, and as we go through this, when we hear the phrase fellowship, the question I want to ask us, the question I want to challenge us with tonight is do we participate with God? Is he somebody that, that we are going to participate with? Because fellowship sounds all wonderful and nice and, and great. It's like, yes, fellowship. And it's like, like when I think fellowship, I immediately think of like meals. Because you always hear, like, we're having a fellowship meal tonight. And it's like, yes, bring extra people and food. Um, and it's like, that's the thing that I think of when I think of fellowship. And it sounds all wonderful and kind um, and all that type of thing. Yet when he sits here and he calls us to this idea of fellowship, He's not calling us just to, to go hang out and eat, to spend time with one another. He's calling us to participate in our faith. And so it makes us ask the question of do we want a faith that is, our, that is going to allow our lives to be, we're going to look at it and say, I'm going to participate with him. Do we look at our lives and say, I'm just going to claim him. I'm just going to going to say that Jesus is my Lord and I'm not really going to participate in my life. He's going to continue the idea. Let's read the beginning of verse 5. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. Now let's stop there. He starts out, and, and if you remember a moment ago, I said there are going to be some major sections that are both going to start with, this is the message. And here's one of those sections where we're going to get to start out with this idea where he says, this is and the message we have heard from him. This is the message we have heard from Jesus. Jesus gives these, gives these guys, the apostles, a message, and he's going to say, I want you to go share this with everyone. The goal is to give it to everyone. And John is saying, oh, by the way, here, here is the message that we have heard from him. And the, the challenge for us when I read just even this tiny little bit of this, this sentence is when we see the phrase, uh, a message from Jesus. Does it make our ears perk up? It's a weird thing to say, maybe. But when we see this phrase, a, a message from Jesus, does it make our ears perk up? Oh, God has given us a message? God, God is sending me a message? Oh, let me listen to that. What's the importance of, of what God is sending to us in this moment? Because you think about, once again, the people who are receiving this letter for the first time, and John's over here writing like, 
this is the message that he gave to us. And it's like, whoa, like I want to hear this message. I'm ready for it. People around me have no idea. They don't care what Jesus has to say. And, and I'm, I'm losing steam. Let me hear this message. I'm desperately ready to hear what Jesus said while he was here on earth. And John starts this part of the letter, this paragraph, really digging into the depth of what he's about to talk about. And he starts out, this is the message that Jesus said. I mean, I'm like, cool. That's a big deal. That's something I don't want to avoid and I don't want to miss. In 1941, many of you probably recall an infamous missed Message. There was a, uh, a young guy named George Elliott. Um, he was on the outskirts of Hawaii, on one of the outskirts island on the western side. And he was sitting there, um, fresh learning radar. And he was stationed out there in Hawaii. Um, and on his radar, keep in mind, he was a young dude. But on his radar, he was picking up suddenly some, some vast movements of planes in his region. And, and he was like, hey, guys, check this out. And, and he called over his commanding officer, and his commanding officer went to that guy's commanding officer, and then they went to the next commanding officer, and the next commanding officer, until they got all the way to the top. And the guy at the top was like, eh, don't worry about it. You're a rookie. You probably really didn't see much at all. Um, it's probably nothing. Don't worry about it. Let it go on. And they ignored it. And they didn't sign the warning. They didn't keep the message that was told there. And because of that, a whole lot of people died at Pearl Harbor. There was a message that was ignored, a crucial message from a loser, not really a loser, I shouldn't be mean, from a guy that we really haven't heard of besides this story in history, named George Elliott, a, a young guy in the military who, who didn't have any rank whatsoever, he was just learning radar. A message from him was ignored, and a lot of people died. And here we have a message from Jesus. And we're more or just as likely to ignore a message from the Creator as the people at Pearl Harbor were to ignore a message from a guy named George Eliot. So today I want to ask this. When we, when we read this phrase, there's a message from Jesus. In this passage, and what we're about to read, are we going to be a people who are going to listen are we going to ignore the warning? Because the result's going to be the same that it was at Pearl Harbor. The result is going to be exactly the same. There's, if they would have heeded the warning, a lot of people would have been saved that day. If we heed the warning, we will be saved. It's our choice. And he starts out this message. He's like, okay, by the way, there's a clear message, and like I said earlier, he has two of these like main message statements. And he gets to the start of this message in verse 5 and says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And you got to think about the people of Ephesus at this time. Surrounded by their gods and goddesses who were honestly pretty dark, sleazy creatures. These, these gods and goddesses who were playing a political game, trying to overthrow each other, trying to, to go behind others' backs and cut other people down. I, like, my mind is, is going to the movie Hercules. I'm like, 
You know what I'm talking about when he's going behind trying to kill Hercules. Anyways, Hades. It, that's what my mind is going to. But, but in reality, this was the stories that they were telling. And so for them, their gods and goddesses were full of evil. They were full of, of disgusting things, and they were full of darkness. And what John is starting out is, okay, here's a message from Jesus. Here's a message from your God. Here's a message from the God that you get to worship. And this God of the world has zero darkness. He is entirely light. There's not a spot on him anywhere. And yet I think we look at ourselves on earth today and we, and we look at the things around us and we find ourselves choosing the gods and goddesses in our lives that we're going to invest our time into that are full of darkness. The little things that we do every single day when we look at ourselves and we're like, man, my life, the things I'm interested in has a lot of evil in it. You can look at anything that you would sit there and be like, that's right, that's what I choose to put all my time into. I don't know why I did it with that voice. I apologize. None of you sound like that. Um, but, like, that's how I sound. But this is what I'm going to put all myself into. And yet, those things are full of darkness. And yet the God that created the earth, the God that is talked about here, the God that we worshipped in song 30 minutes ago, is a perfect God who is full of light. And in him is no darkness at all. Let's go ahead and, and read verse 6. Because we've come off this idea, of, as I said that I'm going to go on the tape, we come off this idea of having fellowship with the God, and it's like, well, we're darkness, how do we have a fellowship with a God that's all light? Let's read verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, uh, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, I want us to stop there. We're going to break down this next paragraph. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him. Now, what does this fellowship with him look like? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I am going to ask you, do you have fellowship with God? Do you have fellowship with God? And I would say that if I asked uh, for a hand raising, which I'm not, uh, for do you have fellowship with God? I would say that most people in this room would be like, yes, I've got fellowship with God. I'm there. I've got it. I bet there are a few of you in this room who deep down inside would, would still raise your hand, but deep down inside you'd be like, don't have fellowship with God. Don't want fellowship with God. Never will want fellowship with God. And so, no, I don't. But I'm going to say that most of us in this room would probably say to have fellowship with Christ. And I think in our world today, it's this idea of saying, like, yes, I'm a Christian. Being willing to sit there and publicly announce and, and publicly say that you love God, that, that you believe in Jesus. Like, hey, yes, I'm a Christian, um, and I'm, I'm a spiritual individual. And I think that, that for us in our world, this is the idea of claiming fellowship with Christ. And from that perspective, there are a lot of people in this world who would sit there and say that they have fellowship with Christ. And we're constantly seeing people claim it, whether it's on Instagram or maybe it's a cross around their neck or anything like that. We'll people see people claim it. Um, we will claim it pretty often. Um, and I think that if we're claiming this Christianity, then we're saying, like, I have fellowship with Christ. 
And so what he's saying here, in, in a way, is if we claim to be a Christian, if we claim that Christ is our Savior, if we say we love God, if we have fellowship with him, but it is while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And I think it's at this point that we can't help but be challenged. Because if I sat here a moment ago and I, and I asked, do you have fellowship with God? And, and you were like, yes, I've got fellowship with God. And the question that like, we can ask after reading this verse, like, as we read it, like, we go from, uh, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, it makes him a liar. It makes me sit here and ask myself, well, am I walking in darkness? Am I walking in darkness? And so I want us to go to the idea of what does it look like to walk in darkness? Did you notice how the guy went from standing in the light to standing in the darkness? Thank you. I, that, I thought that was pretty cool. Sorry. This is, this is, that's him pre, no, I, yeah, previously, this, pretty intense. Um, sorry. That's like a little, like, subtle change that really sets your mindset, like, so anyways, I'm going to keep going. Um, so what does it look like to walk in darkness? Um, this is a difficult thing to discuss because I think all of us in this room would be like, yes, uh, we all sin. Like every single one of us is a person who's going to sin, we're going to be faced with sin, uh, like all have sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Like, like I know I have sin in my life. Uh, I know like Amelia has sin in her life, her life and I know that every single one of you has sin in, in your lives because the Bible literally says that we all have sinned and falling short. And so the question becomes, and maybe you're asking yourself this right now, maybe you're looking at your life and you're like, I struggle with sin. I know that there are things in my life that, that I do that are very, very wrong. And so the question that, like, especially, um, especially, like, it's super easy to do is like, man, I struggle with this sin. I think I might be walking in darkness. And it's a valid question. But I want to like illustrate it a little bit like this. I want you to imagine for just a moment, you're driving down the road. It's a beautiful, sunny day. Um, if you're like me last week, you're driving down the road, and there's a beautiful mountains all around you, bright sun. And then you're, you're driving, and you hit a tunnel that goes through the side of a mountain. Then you're not driving in darkness in that moment. As a matter of fact, what you're doing is you're driving in light and you hit a point of darkness and, and probably in a few seconds, you're once again driving out of the darkness into the light. It's not like you're driving in darkness, it's just a point in that drive where you're in darkness. Now, I want to change the scenario a little bit. You're driving along at night. You walk outside right now, you're driving home, there is at no point where there is light out. Now I understand that there are street lamps, like let's beat the illusion, let's pretend we're once again in the depths of the mountains, and we're once again driving in darkness. In that situation, we are totally engulfed in the darkness. We're not driving in light at all, unlike when we're driving in the light and there is a tunnel. And so when we think about this idea of, yes, I struggle, I sin, there are sins in my life, that's not the same idea as walking in darkness. Because the idea of walking in darkness 
truly becomes this idea where we're walking through life, where sin is the clear way we've chosen to live, where we don't reflect love, where we don't filter anything we say, where we don't show kindness to anyone, where, where we uh, don't, and it sounds generic, uh, but where we just don't reflect Jesus and we're not striving towards him because he is the light, right? This is the point that he's just come off of in verse 5. Jesus is the light. Jesus is, if you want to be in light, you go towards Jesus. He's the guiding beacon. He is the lighthouse. And I asked the question as we read this verse of, of like, if we say we have fellowship with him or we're walking in the darkness, it's like, oh, and I asked the question of, are we walking in the darkness? And one thing I want us to realize is that there are a lot of people who are walking uh, in light who don't look like they're walking in light. See, there could be a drug, drug addict who looks like they live a really terrible, rough life, and they could be walking in light. You could have somebody who really struggles with lying to a fault, and they could be walking in light. There could be a thief or somebody who has robbed things in the past, and they could be walking in the light. Because what it comes down to is what is a person's goal. If a person's goal is to try their best to follow the light of Christ, and they're constantly striving towards the light, then they are walking in the light, not in the darkness. So if you have a person who was a drug addict, and their goal is to get out of that drug addiction, and they are constantly striving towards this light, and they're constantly striving towards this light, and then boom, they hit a tunnel, and they slip up, but then they come right back out of it and they're striving towards the light again. They're not driving in darkness. It was just a blip on the map. Same with a thief or, or with anything that you could be like, that's a, that's a sin where people walk in darkness. And in the exact same way, you could look at somebody and be like, man, that's a great person. They are doing everything right there. They are giving money and food to the homeless all the time. They, they are uh, doing the right things. They are helping the drug addict, but they're not doing it striving towards Christ, they're not doing it for anybody but their own glory, for their own joy, then they would be walking in the darkness. So what does it look like to walk in darkness? This is the question that we asked just a moment ago. It looks like somebody who does not care about striving for the light. And if we're a person who sits here and claims Christianity, but we're not striving for the light every single day of our lives, we're not constantly giving our entire selves to try to find Jesus as the number one, the main priority, the one that matters the most, we are walking in darkness, and we're not practicing the truth. We're living a lie. Verse 7. Um, verse 7. But if we walk... And the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. This is the best part about this whole verse. It says, if it is that when we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses all sin. And this is the best news that we could possibly hear. Because think about this, and this is an idea. Um, it's kind of cool, a really cool part about working here is like you get to sit here and talk to other ministers. And uh, so like I get to sit here and talk to John all day. And John and I were discussing this passage. And we were talking about it, and it's like, man, 
When we realize how cool Christianity is, is when this passage right here hit home. And it hit us both when we were in high school. But when this passage hits home, when we realize that, like, like, no matter what we do, no matter if we mess up, if we are striving to be like Christ, we wake up in the morning and we're like, today I want to be like Jesus. And we go into our schools and we're trying to do whatever we can to serve him and be as much like Jesus as we possibly can. If we mess up, it's not like in that moment we're condemned and, and, and we're a sinner and, and we're going to go burn. Because what this is saying is if you're trying to walk in the light every single day of your life, if you're giving your all to serve Jesus, to be like him, to reflect him, then no matter what takes place, you are going to be cleansed from your sin. If there's anybody in this world who will ever sit here and tell you that you've got to do a certain amount in order to get to heaven to be cleansed from your sin, that person is like someone to like write off because they're lying to you. And if you ever sit there and have somebody tell you, like, hey, don't worry about anything because you're going to be cleansed from it no matter what. Don't listen to them. They're lying to you. What we have to realize is that if we wake up in the morning with this goal of serving Jesus, and our goal in our life is just to reflect him. That is when we're walking in the light and when he cleanses us. Verse 8. Someone, someone just walk in. Nice. Um, verse 8 says this, and I know we're low on time. Verse 8 says, we say we have no sin. Uh, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we feel like we've lived a perfect life, uh, we are liars, um, and we are no longer walking in the light. We no longer have uh, God on our side. Verse 10 says, and I know we're, we're just going to wrap this up. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I personally don't want to make God a liar. And so, frankly, I need to be somebody who sits here and is like, I'm a sinner. The second I sit here, I'm like, yeah, I'm good to go. I'm not a sinner. Like, boom, liar. You are a sinner. You prideful loser. Uh, all that fun type of thing. Uh, in verse 9, going back a little bit, if we confess our sins, um, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we acknowledge that sins exist, we will continue to walk in the light. It's like an oxymoron, an odd way to think about it, but it is so beautiful. He's a just God who will forgive us 